This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. It's Thursday, August 6th. In the mid-1990s and early 2000s, there was a bit of a tradition amongst congressional aides in the House of Representatives A large glass jar would sit on the desk of a staffer in a congressional office, and whenever Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee would give a speech on the House floor, the staffer whose desk held the jar would be required to drop a quarter in the jar and then pass it on to a fellow staff member's desk. Each time the Congresswoman spoke from the House floor, another quarter would be deposited and the jar would journey on to its next destination. According to the rules of tradition, Whomever's desk held the jar on the day that Congresswoman Jackson Lee did not speak from the House floor would win the pot and collect all the money. Congressional staffs all over the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republicans alike, were known to participate. The Congresswoman was so prolific and so consistent that some office jars became too full and too heavy to move around. Rumors circulated of $100 payouts and jars so full of quarters that the contents could pay for lunch for an entire congressional office. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has never been accused of being shy. She has, at times, been polarizing, known for her aggressive and pointed questioning of witnesses in committee and her willingness to take her political opponents to task. But in her 25 years in Congress, she's also been ranked by multiple publications as one of the most effective legislators in Congress. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week... Politicon welcomes one of America's most outspoken and influential members of Congress to discuss the state of political discourse in the midst of a national pandemic and her hopes and goals for America this November and beyond. Thank you so much for uh, so for joining us and doing this. I am so delighted. I don't know how you put your uh, lasso around me. That's what we say in Texas, but uh, I'm glad <laughs> you lassoed me in. How about that? Well, I'm, gra- I'm glad too. How is, how is Houston doing? in this. We're all in this together in different parts of the country, but Houston, how how are you guys doing in COVID? And I know, I don't know if you're on the East Coast or West Coast, but I know you all have gone through it. Uh, I can say that we're still in some very challenging times. Our our motion or our movement today is try to get people into the testing sites. I've always believed testing, testing, testing. Uh, But we are, uh, Texas is now number one in terms of um, the number of cases, meaning 300,000 plus. So when we look at the map, we are the dark, dark red uh, in particular. And in our area, uh, we've suffered 503 deaths. Uh, We're at 14 new deaths. And um, we're at um, 709 new cases and 52,000 cases over. So 
we're not going down. The only thing that's going down, we had a 20% infection rate, and we now have a 17%. Well, small, small victories. Are there places in the state that are doing worse than others? I mean, Texas is so big. Is it happening? Are you seeing growth or, or increases in more rural parts, or is it mostly increasing in urban centers? Is there, is there any evidence that one, part, one type of area is doing better or worse? I think in, in my review, uh, certainly what we've seen is that COVID-19 is not a respect of urban or rural, and it certainly is growing in our rural communities, and uh, they have less access to medical facilities, uh, which is uh, very challenging and we're very concerned about. Uh, but also South Texas has felt the brunt, uh, particularly with the disparities impacting uh, both uh, Hispanic, Latinx, and African-Americans. Uh, in a very devastating manner. So, for example, last week you had uh, the county judge of Hidalgo County putting in a involuntary uh, stay-at-home order because we can't get the authority from the governor that we'd like to get, which is for the governor to give authority to the local jurisdictions to make a determination based on science. That same county was asking for oxygen, uh, and uh, overall they were asking for more medical professionals and so I know that just recently in McAllen, thank goodness, and I've been pushing for that along with their uh, Congress people. We work ex ex extensively well together, uh, but I know that they have just gotten a uh, sort of mass unit from, I believe, the Department of Defense. So they've gotten additional uh, medical teams coming down to be able to be helpful. So we're, we're in that uh, mode right now. We're, we're in the crisis mode of still trying to uh, continue to bring the hospitalization down, the ICU down. The reason why they needed to get uh, a temporary hospital in the McAllen area, because all the beds were filled in the hospitals. Uh, and um, it's it's that kind of atmosphere that we're in. Uh, people are resilient to the extent that we've got great medical teams. We're working very hard. I've opened 21 COVID testing sites. And the first one was March 19th. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to have been able to collaborate uh, with a small hospital that really has uh, exponentially grown in its leadership on testing. So we just opened um, our last one. We try to do it on the weekend, and we have some that have been continuing from the moment they've opened. And then others, what we do is we come in uh, for a day to three days in hard uh, to serve areas and really bring people out to get tested who are still having to go to work during the week, and the weekend testing is really something uh, that is very helpful to them. I've seen carloads of families with uh, mom and dad and children or grandmother, uh, and it really warms your heart. We give away um, sanitation items, uh, items to uh, work with, and then we also uh, sometimes give away food, food distribution, and then we give away the famous uh, four gallons of milk that everybody likes to have. Are people following guidance there, or do you, do you see a lot of masks in Houston or around the area, people listening and doing what they're supposed to do, or is there still a division of people, a group of people who just refuse to do so? You know, I love my fellow Houstonians and uh, Texans and those who are in Harris County, which is what uh, Houston sits in, and by and large, uh, people, it's almost, uh, Clay, like the national um, landscape. Uh, obviously, uh, some of those who are distracted by mixed messages from the White House, 
um, mm-hmm. as you know, some of my colleagues in the United States Congress were, unfortunately, um, may still be thinking that it has something to do with their civil rights or uh, their First Amendment rights of uh, freedom of uh, movement and access. But by and large, people are very concerned. One of the groups uh, that, again, I love engaging with and view them as leaders not of tomorrow but of today is when we have to see uh, large parties that happen to be with uh, our younger Americans. uh, And not only are they crowded, uh, but they're without masks or restaurants uh, Mm. who have had to be cited because they have not, you know, they have sort of a, a younger audience, if you will, they're open. Uh, and rather mm-hmm. than holding to uh, the latitude that they've been given to open and have people socially distanced, it is absolutely the opposite. And, you know, that's what this is about. Um, it is about messaging with leadership and confidence and compassionate leadership. And if we had only had someone to stand up, say, mid-February, by the way, I had two press conferences in February where no one uh, could even fathom what I was talking about. And I was having it on COVID-19 because it was at the time that we publicly heard about uh, what was occurring uh, in China. And so uh, my first press conference was at the airport and asked the airport whether you were well prepared. Uh, and let me just say this, in defense of all of these entities, everybody was following what was the national trend, silent. Uh, and no one wanted to speak about it. And everyone wanted to say, no problem. It's just not going to be even a problem. But having been on Homeland Security for such a long time, I just knew that, you know what? We might have a problem. So um, it's it's the kind of Why do you thing- think it, that people didn't want to talk about it that early? I mean, in February, it had not quite become as political as it certainly became in the following months. In so in February, what was the motivation for people to not want to talk about it? What do you think? You know, that's a very good point. And, and the point that I wanted to follow up with, if uh, we had um, had a national statement about wearing masks, now it probably would have gotten a few chuckles. But the scientists, um, if they had, you know, pursued uh, what was going on in China, I know there are two-pronged uh, routes. It's, you know, whether China sent it to us. That, that's a whole different investigation. The idea is that we should have studied what was going on in China, how fast it spread in in that city. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, we should have known that the world is very small, people travel, uh, and I think that we should have taken the opportunity to educate people. So to answer your question about why, you know, America is uh, what? It is a a nation of can-dos. It's the nation of success. Uh, It is known as and has been known as the most powerful nation in the world. Why would we want to admit that anything mm. could bring us to a point of crisis? And so I think that was somewhat of the mindset. Uh, and we didn't grapple with how big we are, nor did we grapple with at being a novel virus. We didn't grapple with the fact that we had no way of knowing how this virus would transmit to whom and how fast. And it did transmit fast. If we could have had that information, or if the scientists could have focused on that, uh, and the medical professionals, and we could have been communicating, and the administration uh, would have been cautious if we had not dismantled the pandemic office in the White House. Maybe we would have been able to give some messages out that could have saved any number of thousands of lives. Are we going to learn our lesson? I hope so, because I, I you know, as I mentioned, those lost souls. Um, I've been one of those members of Congress that has wanted to offer a moment of silence. I do it at my press conferences because I want people to know. 
We're a big, 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 big country, but it's 158 going on 160,000 people, loved ones that are dead. I just hope that these souls of whom uh, we should uh, respect and honor and, and uh, acknowledge, because when you hear some of the stories, such wonderful people who are serving and giving and doing, yes, play. I hope that America has learned a lesson uh, not to be uh, not to be one that would uh, have us uh, defeated, not to be defeated, but to be prepared and ready to realize that there are a lot of things in the world, a lot of things in science, a lot of things in medicine, a lot of things in the coronavirus family that we don't know. And so when we see something coming, then we need to take all precaution so that we can save lives. Hmm. So we started this podcast back in March, right? I believe the the week the first week was the week before the shutdown. The second week, uh, I was in Los Angeles recording the the second episode on the night that I think most of us realized the the country needed to shut down. And we taped the next episode, the third episode, um, as our first episode in quarantine, in shutdown. Mm. And it was really remarkable that week that the guests that we had on that week, Congress, your your colleague, Congressman Ted Lieu, uh, was a guest that week. Um, Adam Carolla was on that week. And we just had this really um, almost unifying episode where people really wanted to talk about how this is something that is not political. This is a national crisis. This is a health pandemic. And it's not going to be something that we look at through a political lens. We're going to solve this as a country because in times of crisis throughout our history, we have come together um, as a country, regardless of political party, and we figured out how to work together. And then the fourth episode, the next week... (laughs) (laughs) That didn't last long. I mean, we jumped right back into a political blame game. And, you know, this has been the first in my life, um, the first time in my life that I can remember a crisis becoming so politicized uh, that, you know, health, health, public health is not political. And so I kind of want to ask you, you, you have been in the House of Representatives for 20 is are you coming up on 25 years now yes i am thank you yeah yeah so you are one of the you are one of the most senior people in the in the house yes can you pinpoint a time when this went wrong like when did all of a sudden politics start becoming so nasty that people didn't even want to look at facts couldn't even come together in a pandemic couldn't come together in a national crisis is is there a time in your 25 year uh, history in, in Congress that you can see the tide started to turn? Well, you know, even as we saw the tide turn, uh, Clay, there were moments when we were unified. So if I had to pinpoint, I might um, be reminded of the contract on America uh, that was led uh, by uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, and of course, mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, uh, a huge victory for Republicans where they took the majority from members of the uh, Democratic House um, at that time. Uh, and um, they were driven uh, not by as much by policy and values that we had all adhered to all the time, uh, but they had uh, sizable influence, which let me just be very clear. I, I, I realize that the American people are our bosses and uh, their attitudes change, uh, but we also have the responsibility 
in the United States Congress, as I say to school children, we're the most powerful lawmaking body in the world. We do have the responsibility of pulling together and really standing for what is best for all of the American people. And incidences like this really call upon us to reach for our higher angels to ensure that. So yes, I saw it first uh, in the uh, influence of the contract on America uh, and uh, the absolute uh, attitude in which uh, the leadership of that time led, uh, that it was only their way and no other way. And it proceeded on. And there were moments when uh, there were better moments than not, uh, even though uh, Katrina started out rough uh, in the response by the administration at that time, Republican administration, um, it ultimately uh, came to the point where George H.W. Bush and uh, Bill Clinton uh, came together to unify uh, as to how to respond to the devastation of Hurricane uh, Katrina, as I recall. Um, and it went on to Hurricane Ike as well. So there were moments when we were still in this political atmosphere, but there were bright lights that rose around natural disaster. Katrina was right. one, Hurricane Ike was another one. Um, so where's the light now, Congresswoman? Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is, um, let me say the light is uh, found mostly at local levels, uh, even to the extent of cities, hamlets, and counties, just as we saw uh, the uh, light shining uh, in New York and uh, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, pushing down into cities and and uh, counties of New York and uh, New Yorkers rising to the occasion, people flying into New York uh, City in, in particular, uh, sort of the epicenter from all over the world, probably, and all over the nation, medical professionals wanting to volunteer. That brought tears to your eyes as much as uh, the devastation of uh, people in hallways and dying. Um, and we've seen uh, different states um, where local people in Florida, local people uh, are rising to the occasion, local mayors and county judges. Uh, you know, that gives me faith in America because America is um, a land uh, bounded by land mass and bounded by oceans. Uh, it is a very big country, and it has its own regional qualities, of uh, which are endearing. We love coming to the South. We love New England. We love the Midwest. We love the West. We love our Western uh, attitudes out in the West, uh, riding our horses uh, and just having a good time. We love barbecue. Love fried chicken. Love grits. Uh, love our. <laughs> are we now? You're making me hungry. <laughs> we, we, we love are we our, too big? No, we love our international food. That's the point I'm going to make. We are, we are many different people, but we are uh, Americans who come together. And I want to make this point. When we had the initial stay-at-home orders, just like you had the initial interviews with two great persons, by the way, I certainly know my good friend and colleague, Ted Lou, he is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But um, it was adherence to the stay-at-home order. People were basically quiet at home. Why? Because they were patriots. They were listening to their government leaders, uh, many of whom were local leaders who put stay-at-home orders in. Uh, and uh, or Governor Coma, I just cite him again because he was the first state out of the box, or the governor of, of uh, Maryland, um, or the mayors in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., uh, Detroit, uh, New Orleans, Houston, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, places that I knew in particular. And people play stay-at-home. Why? Because they were being Americans united together 
to be able to stand together. And what happened? That administrative head, the administration's head started to peer out uh, and there wasn't enough politics going on. And we started to, when I say we, then they started to divide among Democratic governors and Republican governors. And all of a sudden, rather than listening to the expert like Dr. Fauci, um, who has been a world-renowned infectious disease and researcher, someone that I've worked with and had the privilege of working with through a number of uh, viruses, Ebola, Zika, etc. Um, they overran him and started talking about it's time to get out. And you know why we're in the predicament we're in? Because we got out May 1st and all the local officials, when I say we, the state of Texas, as uh, indicated by uh, the state leadership. Uh, and what happened when local leadership was saying we're not ready? Clay, here we are where we are today. So we're now right, but there's still there's still plenty of people who who do not listen to Anthony Fauci, do not want to to trust what he says, don't feel that this pandemic is as dangerous as it is. I wouldn't ask. I'm not going to ask you to call out names of colleagues who you work with, but we've obviously seen some representatives from right in your home state who have not worn masks and not believed that it was important to wear masks and ended up catching coronavirus. I mean, there's still a lot of people who aren't listening and who have made it political and are listening perhaps to the wrong information or at the very least listening to who they believe is giving them accurate information. We can disagree on whether it's true or not. But how do, how do Democrats convince those folks who have for the last three years supported this particular president and loved him blindly, how do we convince them that he's not, he doesn't have their best interest at heart? And, or, or, or can we? Is it even possible to convince certain people that this president doesn't have their best interest at heart? Or should we be trying? I mean, I guess that, that's, are Democrats wasting their time by trying to appeal to people who voted for Trump? Well, I think we should always be trying to educate Americans and to make sure they make the most effective and sensible vote that they can possibly make. In this instance, for me, it would be absolutely Joe Biden. I call him the compassionate chief. Uh, and um, I believe, yes, we should always try, but we should do it by our deeds. Sometimes your words simply are not enough. And what are the deeds? The deeds are to help us get back on our feet. And I believe that the package that we're pushing now in the United States Congress with all of us contributed to uh, is a humanitarian package. And it, it reaches uh, all of the red and blue corners of America. It reaches into rural and urban America. It reaches into farmhouses and apartments in uh, our urban centers. And that is to stand families up, to get them back on their feet, to open businesses up to get children where they can really, really go to school and be safe and not get sick. Uh, and that's what Democrats are trying to do. And I think that um, we're going to get, in quote, some kind of deal uh, that's going to deal with the moratorium on evictions and uh, mortgage uh, foreclosures, uh, working with uh, funding for our cities and states because we need it to keep uh, the garbage uh, from not being picked up and firefighters and police officers from not being paid. Uh, so that has to be, uh, we need more testing. We need to pay for hospitals or hospitals that are taking care of sick people that have no insurance. Um, we need to make sure that uh, the census is taken care of and we don't shortcut counting people. 
uh, because the Constitution says count every single person. So I think, Clay, it has to be by our deeds. And we have to recognize that there will be some that will continue to believe that uh, their best interest is vested in the narrow uh, viewpoints and narrow uh, attitudes uh, and values of this administration. Uh, and so that's how we're going to do it. We'll lose some, but we need to keep doing it by deeds. I think if people see that we're for them, for the American spirit and unity, uh, they'll see a new atti- see a new attitude what, and a new approach. What are the deeds that that you've seen from Joe Biden that make you think he'll be a good leader? Oh, it's uh, if there's ever been a, a person. First of all, he has such a comprehensive knowledge of government and how government should work for the people, and his power that he will have as president. He will not internalize it for his own benefit. He'll push it out to the people. Uh, that's why he has uh, shown evidence of uh, policies that really uh, move into all aspects of our life. In his own personal life, he has seen tragedy. Uh, and that lends itself to him understanding the pain that other people are experiencing, whether it's in a natural disaster, uh, whether it's in uh, the uh, feelings of uh, systemic racism or institutional racism that um, our communities have. Um, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't really excite the left, though, does he? I mean, there are a lot of people who've criticized him for his crime bill in the 90s, and they're... I mean, he just doesn't really get enthusiasm from the left. How how can he get that? Um, well, I, I would... Um, I, I'd beg to differ as the time has gone on. I think we have the enthusiasm of recognizing that a change has to come. And I think as uh, Joe Biden speaks from the heart uh, and as we begin to review some of the policies that he has worked diligently on with um, Bernie Sanders and many others uh, who are uh, of different views that he may have had, then I think he more and more um, speaks to criminal justice reform. I know he supports the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I know that he believes in investment uh, in both Latinx and uh, African-American communities as it relates to small businesses, education, greater opportunity for gaining wealth. Uh, and you introduced a bill to you introduced a bill to to study reparations. Has he come out in support of that specifically well, of I reparations? That, I know that um, his team uh, is reviewing it. That's exciting for me because it is a well-received legislative initiative. And what it is, Clay, is uh, the commission to study and develop reparation proposals. Uh, It is a governmental commission. Uh, It is based on government action. So it is not based on my neighbor uh, and what happened with my neighbor's family. Uh, It is uh, definitely reviewing uh, the nation's original sin, uh, which is slavery, uh, holding people for more than 200 years, in bondage, uh, never providing opportunities for any transfer of wealth, a long history of uh, white supremacy in terms of the African-American community uh, enslaved, uh, the descendants of the enslaved Africans all through the 1800s. We were never able right. to receive any opportunities. So the why do people here, always study it, though? Why I do think, people, we, everybody wants, everyone in the, in the primaries, I think with the exception of maybe Marianne Williamson, Everyone in the primaries was in support of studying reparations. Everyone talks about studying, studying, studying. Has anyone come out and said they are in support of reparations, period, end of sentence? Oh, absolutely. Um, Has Biden? 
as they say, as I said, um, his team is studying, studying the bill, studying the bill. I didn't say studying it. He was studying the bill. So we're very grateful for that. But we have a mountain of support. Uh, we even have data that uh, a percentage of Americans, um, a majority of Americans now study that was just rendered last week. You see the article in the Wall Street Journal. Majority of Americans now support uh, reparations. Uh, the momentum is really moving. Tom Steyer, Danny Glover, John uh, Legend, um, and but Biden hasn't. Said, but Biden has committed to studying them. I guess that's what that's what confuses me sometimes because I don't understand what because it sounds to me sometimes like studying them just means let's talk about them a little bit longer, put it off, study, put it off, study, put it off, and and no one has said they are in support to that I have heard has said they are in support of. This is what they would look like. This is how we would do them. They would be direct cash payments, or they would be payments into communities uh, of color. We no one like, said anything but studying. Yeah, no, but we don't want that to happen. We want this commission to be passed so that you have the framework for how this should be done. This commission has been filed since 1989 uh, by my predecessor, John Conyers, uh, and this format is the format that is appropriate. We're legislators. And so presidents sign bills. It's up to the legislature uh, to debate the bill, to mark the bill up, and to pass the bill out of the House and the Senate. I feel very good with polling showing that uh, most Americans support this concept, that this bill that studies and develops. So this is not a study bill. You study only to get the data that you need, but to develop the proposals through this commission that then becomes uh, hopefully an agenda uh, to pierce into these existing disparities. There is no doubt that from the moment of our arrival, a tech, our historical arrival, 1619, uh, that these disparities, this horrific um, and heinous uh, tragedy uh, of slavery has impacted uh, African-Americans. But as well as the reparations would be um, part of a response to slavery, once you help the economic status of some Americans, you help the economic status of all Americans. So we want this legislation right. to go through. Um, and would you trade? Would you trade Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in exchange for it? Do you worry that that discussions about this might be exactly what Donald Trump wants to divide and conquer with? I mean, it, do you, do you lose white voters in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan if this becomes a central campaign issue? As I've indicated, it's up to the legislature to debate, um, and people come from all of those different states. Uh, but uh, we don't intend to lose any state um, as relates to the presidential elections. We believe that uh, President Biden has a record that responds to all of the needs of a very diverse America. Legislation runs on its own track. And so um, we're delighted that this. Uh, issue is being studied by the campaign, not studied to say study, but it's being looked at. That's a good thing. But what we're asking, but if he came out and said he was in support of something like that, or or we should talk about police reform too, because obviously, what the what the current president is trying to do is pin the whole defund the police Antifa far left movement on Joe Biden and say that he is a puppet for the far left, right? But if Joe Biden were to come out and say he was in support of some of those things, he were or he were in he was supportive of reparations. Do you think that would hurt him in some of these midwestern uh, working class white 
populated states with some of those voters. Is it possible to win and 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 really get minority voters and and the left wing of the Democratic Party enthusiastic and not at the same time alienate some of the more moderate working class white voters in some of those swing states like mine in North Carolina? Can you do both? Right. Can you get people excited or do we have to settle for we're not excited about Joe Biden, but we hate Donald Trump, so we're going to vote for him? Uh, I, I guess I, I don't want to be Pollyanna, but I guess I want to be uh, inspirational and excited. <laughs> Who will be the next? Well, you go for it all you want to. <laughs> try to make me, try to, try to inspire me, I'm please. Try to, I'm, try, I'm <laughs> going to try and, and take you through the Constitution and uh, the fact that this nation was uh, created to form a more perfect union. Uh, and if we don't uh, continue to try uh, to create an atmosphere where there's space for everyone, uh, then we fail our founding fathers, and we also fail, in essence, uh, in fixing some of the faults of our founding fathers, not having uh, women uh, in uh, the Constitution, not having African Americans as a whole person, which now reflects as well on how we treat uh, undocumented persons. So I have a sense of hope that you don't have to isolate Ohio and Pennsylvania and the Midwest and North Carolina uh, and uh, the Carolinas and the South. I, I'm looking for a way to be able to discuss these issues and not be threatening. I think that Joe Biden has an absolute uh, uncanny ability to deal with people. He's genuine. Uh, he's caring. Uh, and I think he has uh, the ability to refute any negative attack uh, if he were to uh, look at an issue that impacted one segment based versus another, one part of the population versus another. He has to be the president of the entire nation. He has to be as sensitive to the needs of rural America, small farmers, uh, as he has to be to the kid that's growing up in public housing uh, in the middle of Baltimore or New York or any other large city. And so I think he has that ability. People have not seen him fully out on the campaign trail. For those of us who work with him, he is, uh, in essence, a liberal, um, probably criticized for being that uh, of years past. Of course, there are new approaches to the term liberal or left, uh, but I believe uh, Joe Biden has the capacity to embrace by his policies, uh, embrace the understanding. Uh, he is uh, a supporter of the N domestic bill rights for, for domestic workers. That's, uh, that's uh, a positive and wonderful step. He knows, but he's getting hit from both sides, Congresswoman, isn't he? I mean, listen. I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, and and I've always been open. My producers are going to take a drink because I'm going to own my bias here. They say I own it too much. It's it's public knowledge that I am a big Biden supporter, and I have have always been or have long been a Biden supporter. But I do worry that he gets hit from both sides, and I don't know all the time. And I'm wondering what how you feel about it that sometimes he's not also getting hit just as much from the left as he is from the right. He has certainly been, he, he got attacked by some people on the left, especially during the primary, because he has been friends with Republicans. He has, he has touted his friendships with uh, Republicans who he's worked with in the Senate, some, some really bad segregationists that he worked with in the 70s, who he said he was able to get things done with. He's called Republicans good friends of his, and he's gotten hit from the left. Personally, I... My, me as one sole voter um, see that as a as a benefit to be able to work across the aisle with the Republicans, but some people on the left don't like that. Does it concern you that 
that there is division within the Democratic Party right now that perhaps some people on the left will not see him as sufficiently progressive? Well, I'm I'm going back to my um, singing of, uh, uh, you know, Pollyanna <laughs> singing of all the songs of unity and remind you that he has had extensive conversations uh, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, positive discussions. Uh, they are openly supporting him enthusiastically. Um, he didn't have any problem with uh, developing uh, his uh, friendship and collegiality with them. I was part of co-sponsoring a unity uh, statement in the Rules Committee uh, that was joined in by uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, of course, uh, and that, as I am a Biden supporter, and that unity, I believe, uh, was a very strong statement in the party faithful. You need to get the party faithful, and we did not see a crack in the armor while we were doing our rules and platform, and so I do think um, I want to give you comfort that in this time of trouble and storm, Democrats are going to come together. Yes, uh, the president, uh, if elected and sworn in, President Biden will have to address uh, many of the concerns of different perspectives in the party. But I know that his leadership will be based on policy and how it can best help the American people as a whole. And I think there I won't ask you the policies that are going to be very good for the American people uh, and uh, they will see that in his leadership. I, I won't ask you to handicap anyone. I won't put you in that position, but I will ask you how important the VP pick is when it comes to, or who, who that will be when it comes to satisfying any particular uh, group of voters. Do you think that it's important that his VP pick satisfies his own party or is someone who appeals to the moderate voters who he needs to win in some of these swing states? Well, everyone, we don't know who the vice president is going to choose, but what I will say to you is that everyone whose name has appeared, um, I view them as outstanding uh, Americans and public servants. Uh, and everyone that I've heard that have been interviewed, their commitment has always been, I want Joe Biden elected president, uh, whether I am uh, running across the country, helping him out or serving as his uh, teammate. Uh, and Do you think he made a mistake by setting expectations that he would ch choose a woman? I think, no, I think it was from his heart. No one, no one made him say that. No one makes Joe Biden say anything. I think that was actually Do you think his that heart. He has a beautiful wife, Dr. Jill, uh, and um, he's got some granddaughters and wonderful grandchildren. Uh, grand, uh, uh, and um, I think he said it from his heart. I think he said it from the historical perspective of his heart. And that's a good thing. I think Joe. Well, do you think he's from his heart? Do you think he's going to upset people if he doesn't pick a black woman? Uh, everyone that I have seen <laughs> interviewed said you can tell me. You can just tell me how you feel. <laughs> that they want to see Joe Biden win. Uh, it is obviously the case that no matter what we do as public servants or candidates, that we'll have uh, those uh, who uh, will feel. Uh, differently. So what do you have to do? You got to stand up. Uh, you got to straighten every straighten your clothes out, and you've got to actually uh, engage with the voting public, share with them your story. But let me tell you, that's not the end of the story. This is a moment when the rise in diverse communities, from women uh, to different ethnic and racial diversity, uh, racial groups, is large. And I believe 
uh, the administration has a wonderful opportunity to have a diverse cabinet of a unique proportion and oh, yeah. well, various levels. And that should be the statement of America, that we have people who are different uh, from different communities placed in the government serving the entire nation. That's the American it's- experiment that we're showing to the world. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. This Halloween, listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. Soundtracks available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music. But I mean, like, everybody's got a podcast these days. But what would I know? I'm Satan, for God's sakes. Don't even get me started. Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. From forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes published twice a week with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's certainly way past time to have a female vice president, female president, <laughs> female defense secretary we've not had. It's female secretary of the treasury I we've never you. had. There are a lot of positions. Keep going. That we, <laughs> there are a lot of positions that have not been filled by women. There are a lot more positions that have not been filled by people of color, by women of color, certainly. But, but do you think that when he says very specifically that the vice president will be a woman, that the next, and, and again, I love this, but but I'm asking the question anyway. When he says that the next Supreme Court justice seat will be filled, it will be appointed, he will appoint a, a black woman. Um, sign me up. That's great. But do you think when he says that, that it rings to some voters in the Midwest, especially white voters, in who, who voted for perhaps Obama but have switched over to Trump, or maybe they haven't voted um, Democrat in a while despite agreeing with Democrats on policy, but because there's there's a lot of politics of personality. There's a lot of, of identity politics nowadays. And if they hear the next Supreme Court justice will be a black woman, the vice president will be a woman and should be a, a woman of color, 
Do you think that there are white men who say, wait a second, Democrats are trying to take away the privileges <laughs> that I feel are owed to me, and therefore I'll never vote for them again? There will be some of that, Clay. But let me try to um, clear your mind. First of all, we're up in Pennsylvania. We're up in Michigan. Um, we're, we're up in terms of uh, eight, some are double digit, but I think most are single digit. We have a. Certain, Do you trust the polls? Uh, well, uh, I trust them only to the extent of giving us a readout. I don't trust them for voting on November 3rd, 2020. But what yeah. I would say to you is that um, this has been out in the public forum for a long period of time uh, about a woman uh, as a vice presidential candidate, maybe not as long for Supreme Court, maybe not any discussion has been about cabinet choices. But let me just say this. Um, again, it is all in how you convey and convince. I think that Joe Biden, all the years that he has served, all that his life experiences have generated, as he's often said, gives him the uncanny ability to relate to people who are uh, in the Midwest, who happen to be white males, uh, for them to know that their seat at the table um, and their issues uh, will be addressed. But the point is, as Americans, their issues are equally my issues. I want better income for working families. I want better environment or better opportunity for jobs. I love family farms. I want them to be strong and surviving. And I can't imagine that anyone in the Midwest would be opposed to the kind of policing or reimagining policing or a public safety that would not generate the murder of George Floyd. Uh, a, a, and I don't know if I told you, Clay, his family grew up in my uh, community, mm -hmm. I consider them my constituents, yeah. CUNY Homes, Jack Gates, I have to always say that. And he was known as uh, Big Floyd. He was known as a mentor uh, to a lot of young people. He he played basketball in China with Yaming. Um, he took his family members, uh, young young boys that they were with him when he was able to, to, when he went and played out on the road. So what I would suggest is that I think Joe Biden will be able to convey all of these elements, and there will be some. But I think we will see a turnout coming to regain the America that people love. And that is a place where there's a space for everyone. Uh, that is an America that we've had in some moments where we've come together. Uh, I think we must deal with the question of race still. Uh, but people of goodwill are willing to deal with the question of race. I think Joe Biden has that ability. I think whoever he uh, selects uh, will be a, a support and compliment him. And I think his cabinet, I think he's smart enough to have a cabinet that is reflective of the rising diversity in America, astute and wonderful public servants that will be able to serve this country. And when they go out as cabinet secretaries uh, after COVID-19, I think the various states and places that they go where they'll be talking about solving problems, that's what the constituents will be concerned about. Here comes someone from Washington who's out here to solve problems. And that's what Joe Biden has to be, the chief problem solver of America as president of the United so, States. So I know you won't like to speak in hypotheticals, but let's try it for fun. <laughs> um, so let's let's assume that January of 2021, uh, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I think most prognosticators believe that the House will still be um, in Democrat control. Um, 2021 comes around January. Joe Biden uh, and his vice president are in the White House. And hypothetically, the Senate is still under Republican control. What are the areas where Joe Biden 
and the Democratic Party led by a President Biden can build consensus with a Republican-led Senate and get something done. Because we haven't had seen much being done in a split government recently. Are there places where Democrats in 2021 can work with uh, a Trumpless Republican Party? I think, and um, let me just say that my vision is, of course, um, a Senate uh, with Majority Leader Schumer. Uh, well, that would make life very easy for you because then you'd have, so I want to ask you what it would look like if it was not as easy. Are there places that you can find agreement with Republicans in the Senate if you don't get your dream scenario? I, I absolutely believe that uh, they should find common agreement with us on every American having access to good health care uh, and that we should look at all of the proposals that have been placed on the table. Uh, and the Democrats seemingly have been the only ones that have been able to construct a health care plan, even those, even the plan of Medicare for all uh, and Obamacare have been all ideas by Democrats. So I, I would look. So you think all of a sudden, magically, they're going to come to the table come January 2020 and agree with you on those I things that they fact, haven't agreed with you on for 10 years? I think that the fact that um, they've had uh, 10 years uh, where they have not created a plan of their own, they've had their own president and their own president has not created a plan of their own, I think they might be looking for uh, a breath of fresh air and a drink of water. Clean, wonderful Do you water. think they want rid? Do you, th- do you think that Republicans in the House and the Senate would like to be rid of Donald Trump? <laughs> well, I think that the uh, party that I knew even coming into the United States Congress, uh, because um, I came in with a very sizable group of moderate Republicans, even with the contract on America by Newt Gingrich. Do those still exist? <laughs> I, you and the both of us are asking the question. I think Republicans would like for them to exist. Uh, and I think they would welcome them back. And I think it would be a great addition uh, to uh, their caucus. Now, that means I don't want to lose any of my members. But if they can find some additional ones, I think it would be great. And with that in mind, let me just say health care, the wealth gap uh, between the poorest families, ridding the nation of extensive poverty, uh, responding to a broken immigration system and trying to fix it. That should be a bipartisan effort. Every member of Congress has families in their districts. Republicans uh, have uh, individuals uh, that uh, we are losing uh, because uh, they they cannot get legal status and have to return uh, to their countries. We're losing brain power, if you will, uh, for not getting a true immigration system that works for the nation. I think those are things that we can do. And I would hope uh, reforming the criminal justice system, addressing the question of race, addressing the question of the uh, original sin, uh, and also addressing uh, the question of dealing with our young people, meaning that we should not have uh, a school to prison pipeline uh, so that that's the only route for some inner city kids. We're better than that, as my late friend Elijah Cummings said. We're better than this. Uh, In this 21st century, America should be looking really to take, again, its rightful place in the world. One, in terms of its own backyard, its own home, its own house, treating its own citizens with uh, kid gloves and making sure that they get the best of what they need. And then reaching out to the world that is hungry, again, for America's leadership. I mean, I chair a lot of uh, caucuses that are international. I'm on the Helsinki 
Commission uh, as well. I'm in the uh, Interparliamentary Exchange with Mexico, Interparliamentary, Interparliamentary Exchange with Europe. And I see the world from uh, a different perspective. One, where America is admired or its ideas were admired, and that we have a great opportunity, again, uh, to move uh, throughout the world with values uh, that the world's citizens can admire and follow. You've been you've been incredibly generous with your time, so I won't keep you too much longer. We have a few questions from our uh, listeners who have written us for you specifically. Um, they've done that on Instagram or Twitter. You can do it at Politicon on Instagram or Twitter, or you can email them to podcast at Politicon.com. Um, a few specifically for you, uh, Congresswoman Jackson Lee, and then I have another question to kind of wrap us up here. But Jessica from Austin asks you, what would it take for Texas to go blue? Oh, I love it. Thank you, Jessica, very much. Um, hard work. It's interesting. I was just discussing uh, this today with uh, uh, with this dynamic uh, team, uh, with our Biden friends, in terms of my uh, hope, but also my sense of reality uh, that we're on the precipice of turning Texas blue. So what would what it would take uh, is one, uh, we're in the period of registration, really working hard on getting um, as many people registered within the time frame as possible. Um, in addition, um, we have to get a safe and secure mail ballot program, and we have to be able to ensure that people understand the state laws and so they can make sure that they are timely. Uh, we have to have a huge get-out-the-vote effort. That's the fun part. We love that, even though mostly it may be mostly virtual. Uh, we have a three-week time period for early vote. We need to make that celebratory that everyone who is able, uh, if uh, all conditions uh, warrant that we're out early voting, that the systems throughout the state, um, when I say systems, the voting uh, locations are well-known. They're socially distanced. Uh, they protect the election workers, the poll workers there, as well as the voters. Uh, and then um, messaging. And the combination of great messages coming from Joe Biden and his message and his direct speaking to the people of Texas uh, that Joe Biden will be the president not only of the nation, but he certainly will be the president of all the great folk. This wonderfully diverse state with great history, he'll be the president that we would love to have and call Mr. President. So I think it is a combination. And by the way, the, the key element of all of that is fellow Texas Democrats will bring in any number of Texas Republicans who know that it is time for a change. Okay, Brianna from Katy, which I am assuming is Katy, Texas. Yes, it is. Um, quite a few Texans have written in for you this week. Brianna asks, why does President Trump like to boast about lowering African-American unemployment? Uh, that's a, a strike. That's a very good question as well. And um, let me just say that I have been in the Congress. Uh, during the debacle of about 2007, um, I was present and aware when uh, then Secretary of the Treasury had to come over and tell the Speaker of the House uh, that uh, between Friday and Monday, we would not see America that we knew. That was the collapse, the Wall Street collapse, when several companies uh, went out of business uh, and we were in a collapse. Uh, and it was through the work of the majority in the House, uh, Democrats, 
uh, that were able to shore up this debacle, uh, working with the Federal Reserve. And then when President uh, Obama came in and put in an $800 billion stimulus uh, that began the economic recovery. What President Trump is responding to is the seeds that were planted by the Obama administration. The same thing when uh, President Clinton left the uh, White House, we had a surplus, which was lost through the wars that were fought in the eight years of uh, the next administration. In this instance, all of this uh, early success that was for all uh, workers, all workers were getting a bump. It was clearly the economic policies that we put in place with President Obama, including the stimulus package uh, and including uh, not passing a horrific uh, tax cut that has really undermined the stability of this nation and created a huge deficit. So he's boasting on work that he did not accomplish. He's only boasting on the after results of the Obama administration. But finally, it doesn't take much for this administration to boast. Uh, and as we can see now, uh, we are suffering from unemployment, which really could have been avoided if we had only had a strategic response to COVID-19 uh, and a pandemic office in the White House. And if we let the scientists lead, and let the politicians get out of the way. Okay. And our last one from a listener. Um, it's, it's a little bit wonky and weedsy, but I, I imagine that you will appreciate the uh, attention to some issue that you probably are dealing with in, in your area right now, although it's from Juan in San Antonio, so a little bit further uh, west. He asks, how will immigrant and ESL children survive teacher strikes and school closures? Wow, thank you so very much, uh, Juan. That is uh, a key element, and he's um, uh, talking, of course, about uh, immigrant and um, the um, uh, English as a second language children uh, that I love and as well. I hope I'll include DACA children in the terrible order uh, that uh, the president's just issued that uh, DACA applicants can only be for a year and no, no new DACA applicants. Uh, frankly, um, we are about to pass. Uh, we're still negotiating. I don't want to presuppose, but the Democrats, uh, Clay, has put into this uh, HEROES Act $175 billion for schools. Uh, in in this crisis, in the, and this is a crisis, that $175 billion should be used for any number of things, uh, temporary buildings, uh, air-conditioned tents, and if you have to put children so you have social distance to protect teachers. It can also and should be used uh, to be able to help uh, children with special uh, challenges. Um, the early, the English classes should continue, and if funding is needed because the classes are smaller, they can use these COVID-19 dollars. Uh, in addition, I know that most school districts, I don't know any school district in the state of Texas that asks what you are, immigrant, non-immigrant, documented, non-documented. So all of the children should receive the same benefits uh, and we should not uh, discriminate because there's an immigrant child. But what I will say to Juan is there needs to be special effort being made for children who have particular needs, whether they're low income, whether families cannot afford uh, the uh, technology. We must give every child uh, a, a computer to be able to not suffer the uh, impact of COVID-19 uh, that would uh, diminish their education, special needs children. Uh, we've got to make them a priority as well as our other children. And then to the school superintendents, all of them have to listen. Uh, I'll 
commander in chief should not be dictating uh, educational policies of which he knows absolutely nothing about. It should be with the local leaders, along with the scientists that they can rely upon, parents and teachers, and the overall commitment that America's had uh, that education, public school education, education is of highest priority because our children are our most precious, our most precious um, assets that we have. Uh, these little ones when- are our best and our best. So, uh, Tawan, we are putting in place resources so that those children that you've spoken of get the fair and equal treatment and we don't leave them out. When President Biden has a has a progressive cabinet and a Democrat running the Department of Education, will Democrats still believe that those decisions should be left to local governments? Oh, I mean, I think Democrats are always good at following the law. Uh, and there is a role for the federal government in education. We do. Uh, we are extremely helpful uh, in civil rights policies. We're uh, we're helpful in special needs children. We're helpful with at risk uh, children. Uh, so, and we're helpful with uh, higher education. We're helpful with historically black colleges. The federal government, the U.S. Department of Education, is uh, a umbrella on a rainy day, and they should work well with our school districts. Our school districts. Uh, love to get grants from the Department of Education, love to get awards of excellence from the Department of Education, yes. And in our previous secretaries of education that I work with extensively, um, particularly uh, through uh, Democratic administration and even Republican, when they knew their role, uh, absolutely. Democrats, uh, one thing about Democrats, we love, we are in order. We understand order. We understand government. No one has ever said Democrats don't know how to govern. We do. And so, as uh, President uh, Biden, uh, with all of the, the great affection in saying that, uh, ascends to that position and picks the excellent persons that he will, I believe that we'll have a dynamic team uh, that will help uh, continue to build the excellent education system that we have from K-12 uh, uh, to higher learning, to the PhDs, which is why students from around the world have always clamored to come here to the United States. Could you imagine that the president Initially, it said they had to get out during COVID-19. The uh, foreign students uh, who were duly here legitimately. And of course, we got that turned around. But again, I think that the cabinet that the uh, incoming president will choose will be one prepared to govern and to work with the nation. So that sort of leads that sort of leads me to to, to the final point or question I want to ask. You said that no one has ever said that Democrats don't know how to lead or to govern. I'm sure it would not come as a surprise to you that some people have said that. Um, <laughs> and and I don't think you have to go too far outside of your district, probably, to go into places in your own state where there are a lot of people. We, we were just talking a minute ago about how it's hard to see moderate Republicans in today's Republican Party. But in, in my part of North Carolina, where I ran for Congress, and not very far away from where you um, serve as Congresswoman, there are lots of people who who will insist to us that there is no such thing as a moderate Democrat anymore either, that that there are that Democrats are all far left and there's no such thing as a moderate Democrat. And and a lot of those people who I have talked to and who I'm sure you talk to are actually still relatively reasonable, good Americans who just happen to believe that Democrats are not out for their best interests. How the heck do we get along, Congresswoman? You know, we have to, Clay. And um, as I 
make these remarks. Let me say how delighted I am to have been with you. But more importantly, uh, I'll just have to get like a fan and say, you're just wonderful. And I enjoyed you when you were in your other life or in the life that you're right. in. Um, I just had a good time enjoying you and your talent. So thank you so very oh, much. By you. the way, you know, I've, I've got legislation making September the gospel music um, uh, month. And um, I've had programs at the Kennedy Center on gospel music. Uh, and um, I'm uh, head of the Jazz Caucus as well in the United States Congress. So, oh, nice. you know, I think what people should know, there are many parts to many of us. And I think the definition of what we are, um, with all the love I have for the First Amendment, sometimes comes from the excerpts that our friends in the media take uh, and how we may de- be defined because there are moments when we have to be enormously feisty. And I, I never take a backseat uh, to fighting for my constituents. And as I watch my other uh, colleagues who likewise have moments of feistiness and uh Quotes may come around issues uh, that some people may disagree with, but then they don't see us in the normal day-to-day work when we're sitting around in meeting rooms with Republicans and Democrats, with Democrats of all um, uh, political persuasions uh, from left to right and in between, uh, and really getting things done. Um, They don't see, uh, if we were to talk about the H.R. 40 bill uh, that we have Southerners on the legislation, moderates. Uh, uh, we have people from all different regions and districts. And so what I would say to those people is to give us a chance. Uh, sometimes you don't remember uh, when things are a year or two past. So there were moments during the Obama administration uh, that uh, there were great uh, moments of coming together on uh, some international issues, um, even though there was quite a bit of discussion, there there were moments of trying to come together. There were moments uh, with George W. Bush. George W. Bush signed the Voting Rights Act reauthorization, one of the most proud moments of my life, but more importantly, a great tribute to the great John Lewis, uh, a man that in his fight for justice knew that there was something called the beloved community. Being tutored under him for the long period of time I had to serve with him, I use that terminology quite often, the beloved community. And in those words, I don't distinguish between someone's political philosophy inside my party or outside my party. I talk of the beloved community where all of us are together. So to those individuals who stand back and watch and uh, see us through clips on the news Uh, through social media that we're not engaged in, that uh, there are those who wish to describe us. I think what you have to do is um, by our work shall we be judged. So it will be our obligation and responsibility uh, to show the American people in large manner, meaning in large efforts, that we sign something uh, that uh, is of great help to all of them. Uh, And um, that should not be a difficult task because there is a need. Um, We all, no matter what persuasion we are, should be uh, concerned about our environment. And we need to do the kind of legislation that brings people into the table, uh, into the tent, as opposed to pushing them out. Because um, there's not one of us that doesn't enjoy or hasn't enjoyed the beauty of America, the road trips that you take, and just amazed what a beautiful country this is. Well, that's the environment. 
And we all should want to save that. We should all want to save national parks, museums um, that tell uh, the various stories of our respective histories. We should want to be able to do that. So I think we'll be able to do something that uh, people who look askant sometime will be able to say, this is my country too. When, when Donald Trump is no longer the leader of the Republican Party, do you think Democrats should remember how bad it could get the next time they try to attack or demonize the next Republican president, 8, 12, <laughs> 16 years from now, whoever that person is, and realize, you know, it, 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 it's not as bad as Donald Trump? Well, I think all of America will have that as a point in history. It won't just be Democrats. Uh, once we rise away from this, uh, there will be a sense of um, relief that will be so overwhelming. We might be hugging uh, our worst enemy, maybe, uh, <laughs> or someone we thought was our worst enemy because we came through this together. Um, and, you know, I don't speak about uh, the president as a human being. He is loved uh, by his family. He has his friends. I only speak about policies. And so dangerous policies have divided us. Um, it has hurt us. Uh, it has put us in this crisis. Um, it has taken away a temporarily outstanding in the world. It breaks my heart uh, to see Americans responded to uh, by our friends around the world. Uh, we've lost the moral compass to be able to speak with eloquence about human rights. That hurts me because I'm involved in all those issues. And so I, I don't think we'll ever forget uh, this time in our history. Uh, and um, uh, we will always have a measuring stick. But politics, or let me just say democracy, uh, by its very nature, uh, warrants that uh, we'll be in sometimes and not be in on other times. But every president and every party should be an, uh, a fosterer, a promoter of democracy uh, and uh, respect for the Constitution, respect for our values. So I hope not to demonize anyone, uh, but certainly uh, this remembrance, I think, will cause all of us to just work even harder uh, for the greater good and for the good of this nation. You do that, uh, and I think that um, we'll find that warm and fuzzy feeling again, which I really hope for. It's the kind of feeling when you see uh, the the young person uh, walking in um, a military uniform, uh, proud, um, and it knows that it doesn't stand for war. That uniform stands for peace because America has not uh, been an offender. We've always been a defender. Uh, the kind of feeling you get uh, when uh, your children cross that uh, uh, graduation stage, mostly the high school stage and college stage, uh, that things are going well, or the first house, or the first newborn. Um, I just think that America has so much to be grateful for, uh, so much to um, celebrate, uh, so much to recognize that we have been given gifts uh, that other nations may not have, uh, though uh, it's not good for us to think of ourselves as better than anyone else. But we've been given a lot of gifts in this nation. Who would have ever thought that this experiment would last this long? The only thing we need to do is, um, uh, is to make uh, it better and better and better. Not great again, 
but just continue to work uh, toward America's goodness so that not only we enjoy her goodness, but the world enjoys her goodness. The beloved community. That is a beautiful way to end it. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. On September 17th, 2009, 24-year-old Mitrice Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California, and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Mitrice Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.